0: Hi, this is Considering Charlotte, a series that I am happy to host on the Plainspoken Channel as an effort to spread good information to the laity and clergy of the United Methodist Church. The General Conference approaches at the end of April, and there's a ton of material for delegates to consider. Among all this material, we've already covered the human sexuality stuff, only just some of it. That was last week's episode. This week, we're covering the revised social principles. And this is something that a lot of people already know what it is. Uh, Some people kind of have a hint, um, but this is a phenomenon that really began in earnest in my eyes in 1908 with the social creed. Methodists have always looked to the foundations with John Wesley and the early Methodists being very concerned about the plight of the poor and the ways in which they organized to be of benefit to the least of these. But it was in 1908 with the adoption of the social creed that Methodists really began a, a series of public statements that, uh, once again, once upon a time were published in national newspapers. The Methodists took a stand on this issue or that. Uh, they've had since the start of the United Methodist Church as a denomination. The social principles have been a big force of of unity and contention. They've been uh, augmented almost every quadrennium since their foundation. And um, it was decided at the General Conference of 2012 that they needed to be revised to be more succinct, more biblically based or connected, and then um, also more global in nature. And so they met for eight years, a a task force under the General Council on Finance. No, not on finance. Uh, Church and Society is that one. And um, they've come up with a revised social principles that has been published and put out for everybody's consumption. We'll have a link to it in the show notes here for anybody who wants to watch it, uh, to to be able to see uh, it for yourself. And uh, we're also, I'm hopefully going to remember this time, last time I failed to actually put on screen the portions we're talking about. But today we'll look at specific portions. Uh, We'll talk about some of the big ideas and process behind it. Uh, practical application of it, how likely it is that it'll be adopted. We're we're going to cover a lot, but it's not going to be nearly enough. This is intended just to to help delegates to feel like they, they know what questions to ask and what research to do, and then um, so that whenever it comes before uh, the assembly, that the body knows what to do with it and they're not spitballing. So uh, we're not all of the same mind about the utility and helpfulness and purpose of the social principles. Uh, we're not presenting this because we're we're all of the same mind. Uh, we're, we are all of the same mind that we think it's important that everybody be educated and know what they're doing and and make decisions eyes wide open. And so, to that end, I'm I'm very glad to have Lonnie Brooks and Amy Valdez Barker and Joe DiPaolo and Simon Mafunda each here with their different levels of experience, uh, all very well seasoned United Methodist leaders. And so, uh, thanks all of you for. For being here, I'm I'm actually not figuring into this very much. It's I'm just uh, being a, a moderator, really. So I thought it might be appropriate. I just wanted to generally uh, present today's topic, and then, Amy, you've you've seen things from the inside. You've been head of the connectional table, and you've also worked extensively in the general agencies and with a lot of these people that have crafted this document. I wonder if you could speak to the uh, the the impetus between behind why it needed to be generated, why we couldn't stick with with the old one and just augment it, and then also um, the process by which this was created.
1: Yeah, thank you, Jeff. Um, I think, uh, so the perspective I'm bringing to this is through the Connectional Tables work. And um, when I was in leadership at the Connectional Table, uh, one component of our work was the worldwide nature, you know, the worldwide nature of the church. And it was a very important role because we were one of the few bodies that did have um, representation from all of the central conferences and um, all of the jurisdictions the council of bishops the general agencies all came together at the connectional table and so through the work of the worldwide nature and of course there's a whole lot of other complexities to it um we worked hand-in-hand also with the Standing Committee on Central Conference Matters. And as the Standing Committee on Central Conference Matters was working on what does it truly mean to be a global church, to be engaged with equity across our connection um, in all of the places, we continued to say, okay, well, ultimately, even our book of discipline is not fully global in its nature. It needs to be revised to be Fully inclusive of all of the cultures and contexts that are around the world, um, and not just be leaning heavily towards the American uh, U.S. experience. So, with through the worldwide nature, um, which Church and Society was part of, and also the Standing Committee was part of, we really um, began to say, "All right, there's multiple factors in which we have to move towards this equity." Not only are we looking at a global book of discipline, but ultimately we do need to look at a global social principles. And what does it also mean to share our resources globally? In other words, a global apportionment system as well. And so there were many um, different lanes or avenues that we were working towards together through this collaborative efforts. So the best thing, um, I think that came out of both general conference and out of the deliberation and collaboration was to say, all right, we can't all handle this all, to, all on our own. So let's have the um, the responsibilities sort of um, divided. So, you know, Standing Committee on Central Conference matters. And um, the Committee on Faith and Order, I think we're also working on um, the Global Book of Discipline. And then of course General Board of Church and Society had to take the lead with the global social principles because that's their work. And then GCFA took the lead on the um, global apportionments work. So Church and Society um, proposed, I, I think as you said, um, they were they were given the mandate officially by General Conference in 2012 and this continued over eight years. Um, Neil Christie was one of the key staff members from Church and Society who really took the lead in ensuring that we were listening carefully to what what are um, the social matters in each of our different cultures and contexts that could bridge our differences. Like, what is it that each of our um, countries, each of our regions were really wrestling with that were um, stances that a church, specifically the United Methodist Church, should take a stand on, as um, as we are a global body, and so they did. Again, took a lot of time and energy, and got lots and lots of feedback from every region of the world. Um, and in that feedback, they had to disseminate. Okay. Now, what rises to the top of importance? And so, of course, the previous social principles was the guide for that. And how we might adapt it for a global context was the the driver for this work. And so what you have before you is that culmination of the work. Now, you know, honestly, in every culmination of a work, there's editing that happens, um, and editors have a lot of power. So what you have before you is the edited culmination of all of those listening sessions and all of the work um, that came forward. Now, General Board of Church and Society was sort of the first first vetting group that then would have taken care of um, saying, okay, yes, we We agree with this and we're ready to move it forward to general conference. So that's what you have in front of you as legislation now for
0: 2024. So I, I need to, I read a little bit about the big picture stuff and how this document was generated. And I'd like to have you Amy respond to this on the front end so that people know how to feel about this. And we'll talk about some of the particulars on the way, but as, as, um, one who who is sometimes skeptical of things handed me. I want to I want to see where they come from. And what I what I saw on this was that the task force that generated this document was made up of thirteen total members, eleven of whom were American, and the 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 head of the task force was Randall Miller, who was once the executive uh, interim executive director of Reconciling Ministries Network, which of course is a, a gay caucus group. Uh, and he has also headed up a lot of protests at General Conference and previous quadrennia. So that signals to me that this is a document not of the the church more broadly, but of American um, progressive interest. Do you think that that is a fair conclusion to draw, or do you think that there's, there's a way that someone doesn't have to look at it this way?
1: Well, I do think that, again, sort of process is important, And who gets selected are, you know, I mean, I think is much broader. So I have to trust that, you know, church and society did their due diligence in ensuring that the people who did come together were those who could represent the whole. Because what they were doing was, again, disseminating what came directly from the people. So my hope and prayer is, and and again, it's about trust, right? Like it's trusting the people and the process My trust is that um, the people in the process came together and listened and actually used the words from the people who are on the ground to put forth something that should be for the body, for the whole.
0: So in order to to trust, uh, it is often helpful to to know who is a part of the creation of the document. And the only names I was able to find were Randall Miller, Mary Elizabeth Moore, Chapel Temple, and then supposedly there was a a committee of 50 people who drafted this document, but I couldn't find that list. Do you know if that list has been published anywhere? I do not know. Okay, yeah, sorry. (laughs) Okay, yeah, I mean, that's it's it's a hard thing, and it's similar to the Christmas covenant, which, um, you know, has ostensibly been published by a number of non American authors, but it's been impossible to find a list of who those authors have been as well. So it's one of those things where you really are put in the position of you just have to trust. I do wonder.
1: Yeah, well, and I do wonder if um, Church and Society has that, you know, or willing to give that. I, I have not pursued that. So, you know, I would definitely turn to the colleagues over there and ask them directly, is yeah. that list pub- publishable? Because I, I think it should be. I agree.
0: Well, so I, I knew we needed to speak to Simon. He's the lone representative of non-American rep, uh, interests in this group. And uh, the the explanation, one of the explanations given for doing this was a, a concern for creating a global document. Um, and so I, I, I saw an arg or not an argument, an article talking about the ways in which these social principles, the revised social principles address global issues that the previous social principles couldn't have uh, for some reason. Um, and the list it gave was, and then I'm gonna turn to Simon and ask about how much this, this will satisfy African interests in particular. Um, in the community and creation section, the writing and editorial teams added language about indigenous peoples in the sections, environmental racism, food justice, and affirming science and traditional wisdom. In the political community section, there was new language on extrajudicial killings as added because it speaks to context where political acts are practiced by governments, including but not limited to the Philippines. So uh, my understanding is there that they've just been summarily killing drug dealers. <laughs> um, I didn't mean to giggle at that, but it's 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 a different situation there. The, the writing team also added a new section called colonialism, neocolonialism, and their consequences based on conversations with Africa and the Philippines. And then um, in the economic community section, feedback from the communities on the African continent. The Philippines and Eurasia urged adding new language in poverty and income inequality that rejected the prosperity gospel teaching, that the accumulation of wealth was a sign of God's favor. And then the, the last one I had was in the social community section. Language was included on inheritance rights and widows as African... United Methodists expressed concern about denying inheritance rights for vulnerable women, children, and grandchildren upon death of a husband. So um, before we turn to Simon, actually, Amy, could you, could you speak to—I've been leaning on you real heavily, I'm sorry. Is there a reason why these things could not have been added to the current social principles rather than creating an entirely new document?
1: I think that they move they went into it to say, what do we have, right? Like to assess the whole. And so that's where they started. They didn't say, what do we need to add? Mm-hmm. They started with, what do we have and is it really global? And so starting with the, okay, this is what we have, it gave every region of the world an opportunity to say, yeah, that really does address um, matters in our. In our context, yeah, this does or this doesn't, and as you'll see, there's not a whole lot that's deleted, right? Um, it's primarily added to, and so I think on the one hand, by doing it this way was t- was um, t- to sort of take away assumptions, assuming that what we had was good enough for everyone already, and so I think by by bringing the 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 way it what way it was to everybody was to say, does this really make sense for your culture, your context? So I think moving it as a whole was more valuable than sort of picking and choosing what needs to be added to or what needs to be deleted.
0: Okay. Um, Simon, uh, I'm sure you were able to hear some of those segments of additional parts that were authored with uh, a non-American context in mind perhaps you could speak for a couple minutes about do you agree that the original social principles really was too focused on an american context that a new document was needed and that it does adequately and better address uh, a non-american context
2: uh, th- thank you uh... jeffrey and I appreciate amy for for uh... uh leading us in uh, all those insights uh... to, to begin with Uh, You have already touched on some areas that I wanted to uh, um, just touch on a little bit. Where we are coming from, and we have uh, been raising voices about some of the issues before we even go into the details of, uh, you know, the global issues that we wanted to to tackle. I agree with you that there are issues that are, you know, uh, US-centric. There are issues that we really wanted to become more global. That's why there was the effort to even do the general or the global Book of Discipline which would really show the more global nature of the denomination. And I was privileged to be a member of the Standing Committee of Central Conference Matters tasked to do part of the, book of, the general Book of Discipline or the Global Book of Discipline. But our concern uh, from the African perspective or Central Conference's perspective like I said, you've already touched on it, that Africa contributes about forty two percent of the membership of the denomination. But if you go down to the uh, general board on and society you know uh, uh, representation, we we are on like three percent. And we don't go back to what we have already alluded to that uh, I think Amy touched on it that you know, when it comes to editing, uh, you know, editors have got some powers that they have that we cannot control, and you then point at issues like the task team, uh, its composition, who was leading the, the task team. We also raised those issues. Randall Miller was was was, was a leader. He's a member of uh, the Reconciling Ministries, and and at the end of the day, there was it was kind of skewed to the American progressives, and that has an impact on the amount of trust we put on the outcome of what we are trying to do. Then if you go back to to the African setup, I was also privileged to attend some of the uh, conversations on the new social principles. They had some questionnaires that they came with and uh, I'm sure they were were made in a way that they would avoid areas that they knew were of we sensitive in particular geographical setups. Why I say that we were very expectant, or we were keen to see issues on uh, human sexuality, for example, definitions of marriage and things like that. We were never given a chance to touch on that, as Africans. I'm particularly talking about the meetings that I attended to all the sessions that were done in Zimbabwe uh, by the you know the, the the listening and the conversation that was carried out by the task force on, uh, on this team. Those areas where I, I believe, in retrospect that they were avoided because they knew that these would be our outright answers on those things. But eventually, we see the, the new proposal on the definition of marriage is there. I don't know which geographical area could have raised that because we never saw that. I tried to speak to other, a few other conferences, maybe not enough to represent the whole, the whole of Africa, but out of keenness, I talked to a few uh, conferences. They never touched on that, but I guess they knew that we would they were going to there was going to be a lot of noise on that issue so yeah we we end up now challenging the the trust issue because of the bias in terms of the the makeup of the task team. Those were some of the issues that we had already raised and we were continuing to challenge and even as we go to the general conference those things are still there in our minds that but when we did this thing there was some kind of bias towards this in terms of the makeup of the teams and the ultimate product loses the the trust that it needs because of the makeup of the people who were doing it so so that is what you may hear from many people from Africa who were particularly interested in the in the in the, in the social principles but overall yes we were agreeing that we need to be a more global church. We need to be more representative of to, to put out and show the global nature of the church and move away from the US centric church that we have been seeing and we've been trying to challenge. And you could you can remember from twenty twelve uh, caucuses like Africa Initiative raising a lot of arguments about representation in many of the boards, almost all of the boards of the general of the general church, our representation was so poor. Even if you look at the standing committee itself, it was all improved in 2016. Before that, it had a super majority of Americans, yet it is supposed to be a standing committee on central conference matters, but there were very few central conference representatives in it until 2016 when there was a major uh, shift, but still it was not good enough. Because if you look at the general membership, now Africa is uh, more than half of the denomination. So that should reflect in terms of our representation and that will generate trust in terms of the ultimate uh, results when we do uh, these uh, uh, amendments or these new uh, uh, initiatives in terms of bringing out the global nature of the church. Let me end it there for for now, uh, Jeff. Thank you.
0: Well, I I have follow-up questions for you, but I want to expand a little bit on what you said for an American audience that may or may not know about some of this insider baseball uh... stuff that you're talking about but whenever whenever amy is representing the institution uh... and saying that they they had these global uh... sessions of listening what i heard you say was that yes they did hold such sessions however they did not uh... let uh... at least your non-american audience speak to all the areas of the social principles that you were interested in speaking to is is that what you said Yes. Yes.
2: That's exactly what I'm saying. Yes. Thanks Jeff,
0: for clearing that. Okay. Okay. And so there's concern on your end that, mm-hmm. um, the social principles, the revised social principles does not reflect, uh, the will of, of global international partners because of who it's headed up by, but also because to your, to your subjective one person experience, the process of collecting feedback was not done in earnest. Um, before i get your reaction on that one thing that i i some reading i did on this this morning the the task force was they released some of the language over time they re, they refused to release any language dealing with the nature of uh marriage uh for a long time because they said the 2019 special called conference would be dealing with that issue so they were waiting on that general conference to take place well that general conference took place and it spoke clearly, that a traditional understanding of marriage was what they wanted, but even so, that task force eventually published the revised social principles, which redefines marriage anyway, which goes against the spoken will of the General Conference last time it assembled. So, to my mind, that 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 betrays that trust that was given them to, to provide a document that represented the General Conference. Simon do you see the things the same way? And then I want to give Amy a chance to respond to that because I, I might be seeing this wrong, but go ahead, Simon. Is, yeah, yeah. is that kind of what you're talking about there as well?
2: This is, this is exactly what we are talking about here, Jeff. Uh, uh, this small group that is trying to help then goes and rebuffs the decision of the general conference, the legislature, which speaks on behalf of the denomination. It rejects what they've, what they've, agreed on what they've legislated on so 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 when we then go forward, all those people who legislated on that issue are not going to are not likely to support it because you are actually rebuffing what we have put in place. This is the challenge and this is a smaller group you know coming from one board that is uh, uh, having to rebuff what the general church has uh, said this is how we are going to to govern the church so so we obviously I can foresee problems. That's why in some other conversations we were saying, this, is, this could be a recipe for a, 20, a repetition of 2019 if you are not careful about that. This is exactly what I'm saying, that uh, people continue to treat that with suspicion because we say, but the general church spoke and said, this is what we would want to see happen. Then the, 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 the research group or the, 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 the group, the task team, rebuffs that and uh, comes up with a new definition. Obviously, we're going to have issues with that, especially from the central conferences and particularly from Africa. Thanks Amy, do
0: you that. think there was anything that I was missing in the way that I broke that down? I Maybe I'm being uncharitable or maybe there's other ameliorating, ameliorating factors that would help people look more charitably on what was submitted.
1: I really honestly can't speak to any of that. I okay. did not follow yeah. where
0: it went. I hear you. I hear you. Um, and of course, Africa is still speaking. Whether or not it's in this particular venue, um, the United Methodist Africa Forum is an institutionalist African body. They are against um, any any kind of division, um, global Methodist or anything like that. They've soundly rebuked all of that. But even they, as they've gotten together and they want to walk hand in hand with American interests, they've said that when these social principles are presented, they are going to submit an amendment to go back to the traditionalist definition of marriage. So they've done that partly also to, uh, I, it's my understanding, to save face. They, they wanna, uh, their, their detractors want to characterize them as being liberal, and they're saying, no, we're not liberal. We, we want to change the revised social principles to reflect our, our traditionalist ethics whenever it comes to those things. Simon, before we moved on from you, I wanted you to speak to... Um the the team that crafted this document you've already spoken to the information gathering sessions but are you aware of anyone in africa that was on this team of of fifty that that created this document
3: uh,
2: I, i'm sorry jeff i, I cannot remember uh, all the members but i think there was one member from uh, drc congo the french speaking person but uh, I had, I didn't take the time to go back again and just check the the, uh, the representation there. I could not do that. But I remember there was a French-speaking person uh, from Congo on those who came to Zimbabwe.
0: Okay, okay. So, there the, and I don't think that UM News would lie or anything, but it was widely reported that there were many authors that were not American that were a part of that team of 50 that drafted it. So I just thought it would be good to have you vouch for... Yes, there were American, or African authors that were a part of it. Um, I knew we needed to, to turn to Lonnie because he had some critiques of uh, presenting this legislation that I, I think need to be heard. But also I want to acknowledge my my viewpoint has clearly come through on this, and I'm, I'm not in favor. Uh, so perhaps, uh, Joe, maybe you can help uh, spin this a little bit differently and provide a, a charitable outlook for, uh, we've already heard Amy's explanation that I think is compelling that, it was crafted in American context with an American voice. It's it's it needed a complete redrafting in order to speak to a more global context. Uh, Joe, do you, do you think you could speak to the utility of having social principles at all? Why? Why you're proud to belong to a tradition that has social principles and, and takes seriously its social witness like this?
4: Sure, and, and I would like to speak a charitable word. I think a lot of the content that came through clearly reflects the earlier statement. There's no, it clearly was using that as a base to, to work from, and um, the, I think it does a good job in general of of doing what they should do, which is put out basic, fundamental principles to help Christians think through the issues that confront us in the modern world. Um, you know. I like the fact that they talked about things about like that creation is God's. We are stewards of God's creation, um, to remind us that all people have dignity and worth because we're created in the image of God. I mean, there's, there's kind of fundamental principles that, you know, and, and that and also that it's very Wesleyan to apply these to all of life. You know, we're not to have a a compartmentalized life. We don't keep our faith just in church on Sunday. We're still still apply it everywhere. So these are efforts to help us, to help give us fundamental, you know, guidance on how to do so. And I mean, it doesn't mean I like everything in it. <laughs> there, there are pieces I would disagree with. There are pieces I think are confusing. Um, uh, so, so I have some critiques of it, but I, I think there's a lot of good, good sound stuff in it. Uh, uh, okay, one of the key themes that I think that is important is that traces through the document has to do with a very biblically-based concern for the poor, the marginalized, those on the edges. That's very biblical, and we need to keep that in mind. So there, all, I think there's some good stuff there. And and the fact that they emphasize this is not church law, the this is not juridical in nature, it's meant to be a guide to thought. So I think all of that's positive. Um, if I might give some of my criticisms, um, I guess I'd have two general kind of criticisms of the document. And I think they both basically point to perhaps, they didn't quite accomplish what they wanted to make it as global as they had in mind. I still think it's a pretty Western and US document in terms of how it's framed. Um, An awful lot of it it talks in terms of human rights. Um, You often find that phrase again and again, it's a basic right, it's a human right, it's a basic right. Now I believe in human rights. I'm not disputing that, but I would like to have heard more about the corresponding responsibilities. With every right, there are corresponding responsibilities, and I didn't see a lot of that. Um, you know, there was emphasis on things like uh, holding freedom and liberty, but what about what about biblical teachings about you know, such as in Second Peter, First Peter two, uh, do not live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a pretext for evil. Um, so. I would like to have heard a lot more about that. Um, there definitely were some, I think, Western ideas that are current, certainly in North America. There was kind of a blanket statement, I think, on one of the pages when it talks about healthcare. It says healthcare is a basic human right. That's an interesting statement. Healthcare is a very complex thing. And it's not quite the same to say that as you would say, say, speech, free speech should be a basic human right. Because healthcare involves the services of other people, the use of resources. I, I don't think you can just say in an unqualified way, healthcare is a basic right. What are the responsibilities that go with it? How do we proportion that out? What are the responsibilities of the person seeking the healthcare? I mean, I, can't, I don't have an absolute right to demand all kinds of services of doctors and nurses and others for you know, free of charge. And what about my own, I have a daughter who's a physician, and one of her great frustrations is as a physician, she tells her patients, you know, here's, here's medication, and they don't take it. <laughs> here's, uh, here's what you need to do in changing your diet, and they don't do it. And then they come back later, and they're making greater demands on the system because their condition is worsened. So I'd like to have seen more of emphasis on the idea of responsibilities, and especially of the church. Um, what are the responsibilities of the church? The Christian community's responsibility to care for those who are sick and infirm. That didn't come through as clear to me. So those are just some examples of uh, how I think it still had a very Western focus. The other piece was the i it, it, it I think it does a better job of trying to put biblical and theological foundations. But once you get out of the preface or introduction into the body of the into the body of it, I only mm. I may have miscounted, but I only counted nine times when biblical texts were cited in like thirty pages. And I would have liked to have seen more exploration of biblical themes. You know, talk about I, mean, I know they wanted to keep it concise, but you know, talk about the The concern for the poor rooted in laws that were woven into the uh, the life of ancient Israel, the gleaning laws and things of that sort uh there's not really much there on that uh, when it talks about pornography, for example, uh a good statement on pornography to be sure, but uh, you know again, what's the foundation it didn't you know I could have used more about Jesus talking about you know lusting in your heart that's not there um, rooting it in the commandments, so there could have been more. In my mind, uh, on uh, exploration of biblical teachings and and also the tradition of the church. So those are just some some general thoughts on it for my. There's some specific things that I found. Am I on well, I, with? I do we think it's important with, to, to cite the, the
0: sources just so that uh, people listening don't have to just believe us. I'm I'm not big on trust. I I, I feel like you know i always tell my people from the Mm -hmm. pulpit don't trust me you need to read the bible for yourself and so we need to make sure that what we say corresponds with the actual document and so whenever you cite the language on health care that's on page 36 of the revised social principles and it begins it's point a Mm -hmm. we affirm health care as a basic human right and vow to work toward expanded access to all forms of medical treatment including preventative therapeutic and palliative care
4: Yeah, and all that's good stuff, but when you assert it, that as definitely a right, I think fits that needs
0: within um, a, and, and, a political it. Uh, milieu in which it, it comes late with, with latent um, mm-hmm. political meanings that, that the denomination may or may not want to affiliate itself with. So I, I think, Joe, that's a helpful specific example of of a place of pushback where there might need to be amendment if they are going to to entertain this. So, um, Lonnie, I, I wanted to turn to you because you you have a a big picture view of what the plenary sessions of general conference need to take care of. It's my understanding that you don't think that the revised social principles really should be uh, brought before the general conference this year. And I, I, maybe I've misunderstood you, but I, I thought it might be good to entertain why it is that you think there are other issues that, that should uh, per, perhaps displace this.
3: Uh, thank you Jeffrey yeah that, that is a summary of my uh, thought uh, at the at the end of the process uh, that I've gone through in, in thinking about this uh, and that's not to say by the way that uh, I think that the social principles uh, and even the uh, the rewrite of the social principles is not an important thing uh, because I think that there are few things that the church uh does that are more important than uh, than formulating a, a statement of our social uh, uh, social intent our social action our our call to be in witness socially uh, th- there's no uh, uh, no getting away from the fact that uh, our heritage rooted in the wesley uh, movement uh, is dual that we're called to be uh, personally holy and we're called to be socially holy and active uh, socially as well as active in pursuit of our own uh, personal salvation. That's the Wesley, Wesley call. So the social principles are important as a, as a guide to our living out that call to be uh, in witness socially. Uh, however, as, as we're told in many places, if not uh, the least in the book of Ecclesiastes, there's a time for everything under heaven. And in my judgment, uh, the time for uh, taking up uh, this proposal for a total rewrite of our social principles is not now. It's not going to be at this general conference. Because, uh, as New York Times reporter, uh, what's her name? Ruth Graham said uh, about the current state of the United Methodist Church uh, and the separation that is afoot, she said quote, "The Exodus." marks a calamitous decline for the broader tradition of mainline Protestantism which once dominated the American religious, social, and cultural landscape. So, if if a secular reporter can have this understanding of what is afoot in the United Methodist Church, it's mind-boggling that United Methodist leadership can't have the same focus that right now we need to be concerned about what we're going to do to adjust the church organizationally to cope with uh, the the fact that we just lost 25% of our churches. And And I suspect that process isn't over yet. And that loss almost all comes in the United States church. There have been some uh, pockets of separation uh, in central conferences, like in Bulgaria, uh, and others as well, but uh, mainly in the United States. And the reason that's a really big concern is because uh, most of the money to support the general church, the church uh, connectionally, comes from the United States. That's just a fact. That's what we live with. So I think that just as in... 1968 uh, the focus of the church for that quadrennium and then the following quadrennium in 1972 as well uh, those general conferences the focus was on uh, comprehending uh, the the merger of the three churches that came together i think our focus in the upcoming general conference and probably the succeeding one as well is going to have to be on how we get the church uh, adjusted not to a a merger, but to a separation that is at least as traumatic uh, for the church as that merger was uh, back in 1972, uh, 68 and 72. Now, mind you, uh, I I think it's important for me also to say that personally, I am less concerned... uh, than some of you are uh, not only in this group but in the church at at large on the identity of the people who put a proposal together or on the process by which it happens my focus uh, just because of who i am and, and what i do is on the product and i believe that in fact even focusing on the product rather than the identity or the process uh, there are some reasons for concern about this new statement of social principles, uh, m- mind you. Uh, the section on marriage. Uh, we have to acknowledge that the General Board of Church and Society, uh, that's proposing this thing, has proposed a, a redefinition of marriage. It's it's instead of being a a, a union of one man, one woman, which is what our social principles currently say, to uh, a union of two people. Now, I support that change personally, but you have to recognize that this is a significant change, and as has been pointed out here already, it's different from what the church has repeatedly affirmed as its understanding of marriage. So that this is proposing that, that difference. But in my judgment, that is not even the most significant uh, change uh, in that particular section of Lonnie, this new proposal. If we could just because, time out one second, because
0: I want you to remember that. So remember the other change you were gonna focus on, but I wanna I want cite sources again, and just let our, our audience see and know where that particular section is. It's on page 22 of the revised social principles. It's under point D, marriage, and the very first paragraph says, "Within the church, we affirm uh, affirm marriage as a sacred, lifelong covenant that brings two people of faith—not a man and a woman—two people of faith into union with one another and into deeper relationship with God and the religious community." So it's still clear that uh, polygamy, polyamory, is not appropriate. It's two people of faith but it's no longer a man and a woman so that's to to buttress what what i already pointed out what lonnie has just highlighted and lonnie you were going to go on and and highlight some other significant changes in the revised social principles that might be cause for uh, concern or attention from others go ahead
3: yeah it it might even be more significant in terms of where uh, jeffrey in terms of what the general conference delegates are going to be dealing with that's petition number two oh seven three zero, found in the uh, DCA that came out in two thousand, which is uh, excuse me uh, two thousand twenty, uh, which is still before us at the coming general conference because it's a postponed twenty twenty. That's uh, begins on page two oh eight of the of the, DC, of the advanced DCA. Uh, so that's what we're dealing with, and and the paragraph immediately before the one that we we're talking about with marriage, uh, which deals with the, the uh, overall topic of human sexuality, uh, that uh, paragraph uh, re- removes from the existing language uh, commitment to monogamy in uh, sexual relationships. Uh, and that is uh, perhaps of even more concern to more people than the removal of the uh, uh, commitment uh, to one man one woman in marriage the, there's a decoupling of sexuality uh, from is from it worth pointing
0: out where that actual language is because i pulled up the petition and it's quite long it,
3: it, yeah it is uh, that's that's in uh, that, that's on this, the next page the following mm-hmm. page 209 of the of the dca it's in uh, section c of paragraph one hundred sixty-one, one hundred sixty-two. Does it, is it
0: in all three paragraphs?
3: Yeah. One th- one problem. If if it if it might be helpful, the the
4: current language of the social principles under sexuality says um, sexual relations are affirmed only within the covenant of monogamous yeah, heterosexual marriage. That's been removed in the that's that's been removed in the current version. Uh, not merely the, heter- oh. the heterosexual part, but the monogamous okay. yeah. part, I guess right, what right, you're alluding so, to. You exactly but in,
0: in section C, right. here I'll just read what it says. We affirm human sexuality as a sacred gift and acknowledge that sexual intimacy contributes to fostering the emotional, spiritual, and physical well-being of individuals and to nurturing healthy sexual relationships that are grounded in love, care, and respect. Human sexuality is a healthy and natural part of life that is expressed in wonderfully diverse ways from birth to death. It's shaped by a combination of nature and nurture— heredity and genetic factors on the one hand, and childhood development and environment on the other. We further honor the diversity of choices and vocations in relation to sexuality, such as celibacy, marriage, and singleness. So that this is, I'm hearing more latitude given to alternative sexual relationships here. We support the rights of all people to exercise personal consent in sexual relationships, to make decisions about their own bodies and be supported in those decisions, to receive comprehensive sexual education, to be free from sexual exploitation and violence, and have access to adequate sexual health care. So it ties in a lot of things there, but the the language can easily be read to be uh, uh, no longer excluding non-monogamous relationships and focusing only on, is this sexual act marked with consent by all parties involved? If so, then it's okay with us. Um, is that how you read it, Lonnie? Whether it's <laughs>
3: Yeah, whether it's by intent or design, that's what the okay. new language says. You're absolutely right about that. And one of, one of my biggest problems with the presentation of of this new document to us is that uh, classically, when we propose a change in our book of discipline, and this is part of the book of discipline, by the way, so we're talking about a change in the book of discipline here, uh, we present the the proposal in such a way. That a a reader can see what the old language was, what the new language is, and clearly understand what the change is that's being proposed. That is not done here. All we're done, all, all we're given is a proposal that says, "Throw away the old, replace it with the new." And the subtext there that's not spoken or not written anywhere, is that you can find out what the changes are. But you have to dig it out, and we're not going to spoon-feed it for you. I don't like that myself.
0: Uh, surely that's not exactly how the institution would want people to receive that messaging. Um, I'm trying to think of another way that they might submit that. I, let me just uh,
1: sort of give thought to that, um, what Lonnie was saying, because I think— Again, the hard part is that um, it's so much, right? Like there's so much language in there that again, having to put it in an official document and both do the old against the new, you know, is multiplying factors. And not only just multiplying factors on the amount of trees that we kill in doing this, but also the fact that it costs money to translate all, because the ADCA has to be translated into every single official language that is in front of the general conference. So so in addition to that, having to put the old against the new is is very costly. So I, I get it, I know where Lonnie's coming from and that, but on the other side of the you know, of the coin, what what do we need to do? And and it puts a lot of onus back on the delegates to General Conference, right? That means they have to do the work. It's not just spoon-fed. And, you know, I mean, this is a lot of reading. <laughs> they have to do the work to look at what was and what is before them at this moment. And it's not easy. I, can I go back to what Lonnie, can I say something around what yeah, go with, Lonnie yeah. was sharing? Um, I agree with the premise of where Lonnie was going with in the sense that we have so much in front of us as a denomination with all that is before us and there are a few of us who have been in the circles of the the inside um, that have said, you know what, it is time for us to just call a timeout, a complete timeout, and do a full constitutional conference. That means as a full constitutional conference, we sort of throw, not throw everything out, but set everything aside and say, what are we going to be? as a church who seeks to be faithful globally and also live with all of our differences and find a way to do that with honesty, integrity, and grace in a way that does build trust. Because as you've just heard from this podcast alone, you know, trust is fractured in our denomination and we've all experienced trauma in what's been happening in the Methodist Church. And so maybe General Conference needs to look very, very different and delegates, you know, faithful delegates need to reflect that and say, we can't go on doing business as usual in this way. We need a full time out because financially, we're not going to be able to afford it. Um, relationally, we can't continue to be in relationship when these, this fractured trust is happening across the world. We've got to find a new way of saying the doctrine of the United Methodist Church is going to look different. And I vote for, you know, 15 to 20 page book of discipline moving forward. But, you know, that's just
3: me, the polity geek.
0: (laughs) Well, it remains to be seen. Uh, By the way, I I need
3: need to say, uh, when Amy talks about trust, she's the expert. She wrote the book Trust by Design. If you haven't read that, you need to.
0: Well, Amy, how much does... Uh, your analysis in that book figure into these conversations here? Is there wisdom from that book so far as institutional trust that you would offer here in a a synoptic form or a a synthesized uh, abbreviated form?
1: Yeah, I I wrote the book as the executive of CT, as the Connectional Table Executive. And my bemoaning was the fact that there was very little trust across the conference or across the denomination. And I think it, you know, I mean, as people of faith... (laughs) Our first and foremost responsibility is to trust God and trust one another. And in and of that, because we trust God and trust um, one another, we we bring people to faith and we bring people into that relationship because we are ourselves trustworthy. And, you know, trustworthiness, it's, it's tricky. And um, I bemoan the fact that um, – a lot of other institutions, like businesses, governments, you know, other institutions spend a lot of time and energy around trust, but the church does not. And so for me, the call and the request is that every church, every part of the church needs to be um, institutes of, of practicing trust in everything that we do. Now, I, I get it. There's It's a re- very complex, but how are we going to be the the body of Christ, if we can't trust one
0: another. The, it's such an interesting concept and I, we can move along, but this feels like it's so important in the deliberations of the general conference. And and I find myself, I mean, I of course am one who, who left because I, I I don't trust those in authority anymore because of reasons that we've heard just a few here, you know, of uh, we've entrusted people to act on the behest of the General Conference and then when they bring things back to us, it doesn't reflect what we gave them. You know, what I hear you saying is, well, you should just trust that we're operating in your, uh, uh." and I don't think that's what you're saying, but what's the difference between what I'm hearing and what you're saying? Like, yeah, it, it looks pretty obvious that we just did what we wanted, even though you said you wanted the opposite, but you're just gonna have to trust us that we know what we're doing and you need to follow us. I don't think that's what you're saying, but what's the difference between what I'm hearing and what you're saying?
1: Well, again, I think that it's very nuanced and that, you know, when you have to sort of lean into, well, are people actually coming with good faith Mm -hmm. into these roles that they've been elected to and that they've been called forth to, to do? Are they giving their best and offering their best as prayerfully as God has offered it to them? You know, I mean, it's a calling, right? Um, but we're also human. And so in our humanity, we make mistakes and we fail. So, how do we keep reaching across that? Have we done all that we can to continue to reach across those barriers of mistrust? And what would it take? for you, right? I mean, you've already made your decision, um, mm-hmm. but what would it take for you and for others to continue to build that bridge? Because I don't, in my opinion, I don't think God wants us to break away from one another. I think well, God no, wants us I, to continue I, I to lean think anybody, into one another.
0: Yeah. Nobody <laughs> believes that God wants us to break apart. Uh, the the reason that they did, and I think institutional integrity depends on an acknowledgement of this in some capacity. It's that mm-hmm. that there was a a flagrant, well, maybe that's not a helpful way to characterize it, but there was a refusal to enact the will of the general conference or submit to the will of the general conference with respect to human sexuality that whenever there was just... Uh, and, and so it, I don't think anyone disagrees on the basics of what happened. I think we just disagree on whether it was right to have ecclesiastical disobedience. But whenever you have ecclesiastical disobedience and you have large factions saying, we're not going to abide, then it's it's strange to me to bemoan at that point that there's a loss of institutional trust whenever the institution doesn't seem to be able to enact the will of the General Conference anymore. And that's not to, to be argumentative, but it's to say, I'm very concerned if the General Conference is coming together this next year And denominational officials are saying, hey, don't you trust us? You should trust us. That seems a bit tone deaf uh, from the last few years. Uh, Go ahead.
4: The other, another piece to throw into this, maybe with getting back to the social principles, it may actually assist in building trust to do what Lonnie and Amy are suggesting, which is defer this to a future general conference, because I think there's a fair amount of distrust about this particular general conference and how it's going to be constituted because of the all of the changes the fact that it's a 2020 conference that's now in 2024 the delegate apportionments it seems to me that if you wait till a future a future general conference 26 or 28 you're going to have a more you're going to have a more representative body of delegates globally than you're going to have this time And, um, and don't forget you know, these social principles are going to be presented to the body. The delegates can do with it whatever they wish. They can amend it, they can change it, they can add or okay. subtract, and I would or table, you, right? Or yeah, or refer. You bet. So I would think that at a future general conference, when Africa and the Philippines are more adequately represented, those voices can have a greater role in in those emendations. So I think it would build trust to defer. But but for
2: but for me that that actually brings in another dynamic uh, assume assume a general conference agrees to defer this which makes a lot of sense for me that, that if i had the, the, if i was the, the decision maker i would defer this mm-hmm. to the next general conference But if that were to happen it has a bearing on regionalization mm-hmm. because my, my my reading of this is that there has to be some enabling legislation in order to effectively implement regionalization. So, if, for example, the definition of marriage was not going to change, but the regionalization passes, there are some quotas within the denomination somewhere who bemoan that because for them to implement certain parts of whatever within their context they will need that enabling legislation to what they believe you know works within their context but it has to be carried in the general book of discipline first in order for them to then adapt the interesting dimension and um i i wonder what how the supporters of regionalization (coughs) to take that but i agree with you if it i was the decision maker i would uh, ask for a deferment of this one to the next general conference but it creates it's like opening a can of worms because there are those waiting to see regionalization happen but
0: yeah i think i'd like to come back to to amy now and have amy speak to Broadly what we were speaking about and wrap that up however she wants to, but then also if you would, Amy, speak to likelihoods, uh, I mean, there's no, you don't have a crystal ball, but how realistic you think it is that the general conference will try and cover this at the exclusion of other things it might, should actually do uh, versus deferring it or tabling it or speak to that however you want.
1: Yeah, I mean, clearly. I don't have a crystal ball, and <laughs> have not um, been so deeply entrenched in what um, what people are doing and saying to one another as they move into the general conference. But um, but I I think what Simon said is also spot on. I mean this this legislation is so intertwined with the ideas around regionalization, so it is a web. You know, I mean, we start pulling on this piece, and it's another piece that's going to dis just. Dis- tangle, you know, disentangle. And I think the reality is, again, and I'm going to say it again, we have to call a timeout. And the body does need to say, let's look at a full constitutional conference. Now, I know how much that affects people's lives, um, those who are working across the connection. I know how much that is like fiscally a huge risk. um, And there are a lot of matters. And You know, General Conference historically, (laughs) when you look at the whole scheme of history in Methodism, not just United Methodism, it takes Methodists a very long time to make any changes. And so I do not know whether or not this is going to happen in my lifetime or Mm -hmm. my children's. But by God's grace, I do think that the spirit of Methodism and our Wesleyan heritage needs to continue to carry forward. And I hope, by God's grace, that we will find a way to live in relationship with one another across the world, but not in control. And I think that that's the key of what does it look like? What does it mean? How do we, how do we stay engaged with one another in relationship around our theology um, but not necessarily around law.
0: Yeah, so- and we'll we'll come back to these issues around regionalization, and we're going to spend two weeks on on regionalization. So Amy's definitely going to have uh, strong input there. Uh, Simon's connectivity uh, is out, but Lonnie and Joe, you're still with us. So um, perhaps we're in the wrap up phase now. But if you guys, uh, if either of you have particular portions of the revised social principles that you wanted to make sure we drew attention to or if you want to give any closing analysis on what you anticipate uh, the treatment of this legislation being uh, in April. Uh, let's see. Let's, let's go to Joe first. Sure.
4: Uh, I, don't, I don't have the crystal ball. I don't know what they're going to do. I, I, um, I think it's going to be a lot for them to, to try to bite off and do at this general conference. So I suspect they're going to, it's certainly going to be an attempt to defer it. I hope that does occur. Um, I, I would just say that there are things in it that require some more clarification. It's also the document that is, what, four years old now, and there have been a lot of changes in the issues that people are dealing with. So um, so there, there are going to be things they have to look at, I think, and tweak and change. I'll give you one example. The, the term gender comes up in two places. It comes up um, on page... Um, or was it, page 28. And it's clearly, in that case, referring to women. It's referring to biological sex and that women should have full participation and opportunities in education and things of that sort. And later on, at the end of the document, on page, I think, 39, it, it used the word gender again, and then there it seems to be talking about gender identities, but it doesn't really define the term. And, of course, say, a lot Say where, where that was again. What's that?
0: Say where that was again.
4: I think that was the very last page. I think it's 39. And... And it doesn't really address some of the things I think that have become hot issues since then, like gender reassignment surgeries and things of that sort. So, and people, those are things people I think are looking for guidance on also. But I think there's some lack of clarity on what they mean by gender in the document. That's just one example of a thing. I, something I think has to be clarified and maybe tweaked. And I think there's some others as well. But um, that's probably all I need to say. I think yeah, to, that was
0: to, point I. Sexual orientations and gender identities Mm -hmm. because people are of sacred worth and certain basic Mm -hmm. human rights are due everyone We are committed to supporting the equal rights, liberties, and protections of all people Regardless of sexual orientation or gender identity Um, We see clear issues of equality and justice So the way that this is obviously going to figure in is around um, The transsexual phenomenon and ways in which Western societies are arguing about whether or not people can participate in sex-segregated areas based on how they identify with their gender, and so unless there's more clarification on this, this could be seen as something that indicates a certain um, a, a political disposition towards transsexual people. You know, is well, it a right I also for? Think, go ahead.
4: And the point is that it doesn't seem to agree with the use of the word gender earlier in the document. When okay. Yeah, inconsistent position.
0: use of the word. Okay. Yeah, that yeah. is confusing. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Lonnie, anything else? Yes, please. Uh,
3: Thank you, Jeffrey. I think that the proper thing for the uh, Church and Society Legislative Committee to to do with this would be uh, to refer it back to the General Board of Church and Society with an instruction that uh, it should bring it back to the next General Conference uh, and That probably can't be the special session unless the Council of Bishops includes that piece uh, in its call for the special session, uh, because a special session can only deal with the issue that's presented by the Council of Bishops in the call. But in any case, the instruction needs to be that it bring this back to the next general conference that's available for it to do that with. with a presentation that includes uh, side by side, uh, clearly depicting what the changes are being made uh, relative to the previous uh, set of social principles. Hard to
0: argue with that. Although, uh, as Amy said earlier, there are financial and logistical considerations that have to be made in doing that. But surely if it's a big deal, it's worth doing. So hopefully, maybe Lonnie, you'll get your wish. Uh, Amy, final words. complex. That's it. (laughs) I think that's a very uh, uh, astute observation at the end of all this. Uh, Friends, we thank you for joining us. It's a much bigger picture than we can possibly cover in an hour, but um, it's really been neat to hear the thoughts of everybody here, and of course, we're all seeing through a glass dimly, and uh, there's more to know than can possibly be known. We, We should just acknowledge we didn't come close to covering the whole document. There was no way to realistically do that, so... Uh, I would exhort all the United Methodists, especially delegates, to make sure to go ahead and be reading this document, uh, combing through it with a fine-tooth comb, because these words matter, and, and they have big implications. So um, there's a big picture to consider, there's the particulars to consider, and then there's a the possibility that it's not even going to be considered at this general conference seriously. So it, it is a frustrating thing not to be able to predict the future, but... Uh, that's kind of what's required here to be a faithful covenant participant. So I uh, want to thank each of, of you guys for, for taking time and energy today to help this audience to, to better understand things. If, if you feel like you are benefiting from that, then we do not get tired of you letting us know that. So feel free to share that in, in comments, share this with your United Methodist friends, and then uh, make sure to subscribe so that you can uh, stay uh, abreast of what we're doing next week of course, we'll have Odell back with us, and we're going to talk about uh, not regionalization, but disaffiliation proposals. Are Is the United Methodist Church going to allow for disaffiliation to continue forward in some form, or is that door closed and now everybody is staying together? Um, Lonnie actually has some legislation he's proposed, but it's not the only legislation, so we'll look at some of that and talk through some of the ethics and big picture stuff. And then um, if we haven't covered anything that you want us to, uh, we've, we've planned for open sessions later, so we can circle back around and talk about stuff. So any thoughts you have, reflections, send it to us at plain spoken pod at gmail.com. And, uh, we're already fielding some questions that we're holding on to, And, uh, w- we want to do our level best to make sure everybody knows what they need to know going into general conference. So, uh, thanks again, uh, panelists, for being a part of this today, and thanks to the audience for participating, and we'll see you guys next week.